You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. JR. <clears throat> yeah, there's two of us tonight. Makes a bit of a difference from the other week when there was five of us. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> It'd be uh, interesting to see what Lee doesn't have to say about what we're talking about tonight. Well, that's actually Lee and Simon and Mark have all sort of done this subject. But three years ago. I listened. I yeah, listened four years ago. You fact, put yeah. out some of the old episodes yeah. on Facebook and I listened to one. Oh, did you? Yeah. They were very different back then, weren't they? It was all right. You started with it. It was a little bit of an awkward... You started in a sort of a Mark said something and you said something else way. Oh, well. So you started in that sort of... And then you started with news, which you don't do news anymore. No. Mainly because it's probably out of date by the time it goes. Yeah, exactly. Especially as you're recording, what, three weeks in advance at times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although, yeah, well, we didn't really know what to do at the start. The first... For, for anybody listening, the first three podcasts we did, we recorded before Simon was with us. And when Simon was with us, he has... Because we were doing it um, without using computers at first. Right. So we were just literally... Well, Simon and I both have a history of 20 years of recording with digital recording studios. Right. So... I was using my digital recording studio for the first three episodes. And then when Simon turned up with episode four, we started using his. Yes. And I was using a... Um, what's it called? can't think of the word. It's going right out of my head. Is it an eight-track recorder? No, no, no. It's a 16-track it... digital recorder. Oh, no, 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 vinyl. Prior, pre-going into the recorder, right. I was using a mixing desk. Okay. All right. And oh. it tur- and we recorded the first three episodes all on the same day, hmm. and it transpired that Mark's microphone was only giving a mono signal <laughs> at one side of the stereo. <laughs> right. And we didn't discover this till after we'd recorded those first three episodes. And because I wasn't geared up to using computers to remix it at that point, which yes. I learned pretty soon after because I needed to. Mm. So those first three episodes had Mark only in one side of the stereo. Right. And so the complaint was that for every couple of minutes, you'd get 10 seconds of silence, 15 <laughs> seconds of silence, which would be while Mark was talking. Wow. So for the benefit of anybody who doesn't know, I have remixed those three podcasts so that you can hear everybody. Oh, okay. They're, they've been corrected. Yeah, essentially. Oh, right. You, you have been the restoration team. I have and, restored okay. them. Wow. And I have um, I, I've sent them through a couple of cleanup programs right. and um, used um, equalisation and stuff to try yeah. and even out the volume of the voices as well. Right. Because the way it was done, Mark was completely on one side. Yes. Lee was mostly at the other side, mm. but not completely. Yeah. And... I was somewhere in the middle, so I'm on both tracks, mm. and Lee and Mark are kind of just on one each. <laughs> right. So 
the initial mix had me twice as loud as everybody else in the mix. Which so did you correct. Well. <laughs> well, yeah, but I had to correct that as well. Yes, yeah. And actually now I think I'm actually slightly quieter in the mix than those okay. two are, but it works close But it sort of, they sort of hold up. They're not, from what, your conversation isn't that far off from the conversations now. Except well, that's because Lee now. and I have been having those conversations for years anyway. Right. Yeah. And actually, Mark and I and some others used to go to the pub and have those conversations yeah. Yeah. sort of every week or fortnight. Mm. So this podcast is just a way of recording the old pub conversations we used to have. Yes, only sober. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Or in- increasingly less unsober. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> which All of which is a roundabout way of saying tonight's podcast, we were planning to do The Hungry Earth and Cold Blood. Yes. So I, as... I've, I've watched The Hungrier. Yeah, me too. And we were going to watch Cold Blood when we got here. But as soon as everybody else has cried off and it's mm. only the two of us, we thought we'd do something else instead. Yeah. So my idea was, considering that this is something that's actually been brought up, I think on just about the last three or four podcasts in a row, in a sort of superficial way, mm-hmm. I thought, why don't we actually have the conversation, which is Barry Letts and Terrence Sticks. Yep. Because, and this is obviously not a radical thought, because I'm certainly not, I'm far from the only person who thinks this, but it's my conjecture that Barry Letts and Terry Sticks are essentially responsible for Doctor Who as we know it. Okay. You know, uh, the legends, mm. as legend would have it, of Verity Lambert and Sidney Newman. But I mean, I think, and this is not the conversation topic, but I think that the version of the programme that Newman and Lambert were responsible for could never have lasted as it was and obviously no. it's changed considerably yeah. but I think Letts and Dix were the two who defined it so I, my view is that Lambert and Newman set up a programme that had the content that would, could last and it had the format or the, the sort of the concept that it had last. a yeah it had but, a format but, Terrence, yeah. but particularly Barry Letts shaped the format into a way that in, worked. Into a way, uh, on a production level, on yeah. the production side, that works, and one that Russell T. Davis adopted. So but these, also these the, kind of... the content as well. Yeah. I think I think much more so the content. Yeah. Because Doctor Who nearly died so many times during the 1960s. I mean, there's mm. the one instance that we really know about, but there must have been... It was never... During the 1960s, I don't think Doctor Who was ever going to be the programme that could just last and last and last. Well, if it hadn't been for the Daleks, it would have died Yeah, in the, last, in the first 12 weeks. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so really, it, it took Dalek mania to sustain it, and probably it fed off Dalek mania until about 67, in which point it really did start slipping yeah, and going well, downhill. The, the views figures last few years. by the end of the 60s were something like a third of what they were in the middle of the yeah, 60s. Yeah, so in popularity terms and also in in the way it was produced, the sort of chaos of production. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just no control and unhappy actors and it was just going off the rails. But I think even from a viewer's perspective, even if you don't know any of that stuff, if you're watching it during the 1960s, you're never thinking... Because in the 1970s, and I'm slightly older than you, so this is more pertinent to me. 20 years or so. Oh, shut your face. (laughs) During the 1970s, Doctor Who was always the programme that was always there. Mm. Every year you could expect a new series and there there was just never a prospect of it finishing. Yeah. And then as soon as you hit the 1980s, 
it started feeling to me like it could end at any time. During the 1970s, it never felt like something that would ever end. Mm. But my conjecture is, during the 1960s, I don't think that was the case. Well, it seems that, so in the 1960s, it was more like, it was more seen as being a bit like Out of the Unknown or Quatermass, these sort of short-lived dramas. In the 70s, it was more mainstream. Yeah. Saturday night, it was generation game. It was part of that Saturday night kind of 1970s lineup, And yeah. then the 80s, it just went off the boil because it became a cult the, programme rather than a mainstream yeah. programme. And in the 1960s, Dalek Mania gives, uh, looking back at it retrospectively, Dalek Mania probably gives us the impression that it was that mainstream yeah. even yeah. then. But I don't think it was. I, think, I was, think that was one yeah. of those flash in the pan things where Dalek Mania makes it hugely popular for a year, maybe mm. two years. Yeah. But, you know, when the, it's like, um, just trying to think of an example now, of something that comes on the telly gets really popular all of a sudden. And yeah. then after a couple of years, when the popularity dies down, it kind of dies its natural death. Yeah. Which is what Doctor Who should have done mm. at the yes. end of the 1960s. Yeah. Yeah. But Dalek Mania was so big, yeah. it had kind of echoed, and the BBC tried to repeat it with other things. So, yeah. things, so things like the Crotons, the Dominators... These are all these are all attempts. Well, yeah. These are all attempts to to kind of pick rekindle up, Dalek, it, yeah. rekindle it, and that probably kept it alive. That was probably the sort of a longer than it yeah, probably yeah, ever yeah. should have done. CPR effect. But what? But so getting back to the or getting into the topic topic okay. of our conversation. Yeah. Barry Letts and Terence Sticks come along, and right, we will talk about where they come from in terms okay. of Doctor Who. Yeah. We we didn't know we were going to be doing this subject, so okay. it's not like we've researched anything. No, no, we're well, literally just doing this conversation as it happens. Yep. So, in terms of Doctor Who, Barry Letts works on season five on the story mm. "The Enemy of the World." Yeah. And although that story's pretty atypical of the rest of the season, I don't think it's quite as atypical as people sometimes make out, but it is pretty atypical. Mm. So while he may have worked on an atypical story, he's working during that season mm. and presumably not completely in isolation. So he gets a fair idea of what's going on in the other stories around the one he's working on. You yeah, I think. And he and he also has a good view of how it's produced. Yeah, the production because, process. Yeah, because yeah. that's the point where he starts making suggestions about producing it better. Yeah, yeah. So he can see how it's being run, which is disastrously. And he can work out, you know, if yeah, you shoot you can... these scenes out of order and if you did this with the budget, you could get a helicopter in this scene. But that is that kind of control that he's slowly, he's slowly demonstrating his ability to take. But what he picks up on in terms of the fiction in season six, mm-hmm. in season five, rather, season mm-hmm. six is Terrence Dix, is the monster of the week format. Mm-hmm. The... Uh, it's as we all know it it's the base under siege thing but you know that's uh, an expression we've given it retrospectively what Barry Letts is seeing is right this week we're in such and such a place you have uh, a finite bunch of people who are essentially isolated in this spot a problem turns up a monster an alien invader and the doctor shows up like the man with no name mm-hmm. and solves it and moves on yeah so in some ways what he's seeing is like a children's serialized version of something like the invaders or even the fugitive yeah, yeah. where yeah. each week's a different location a different story mm-hmm. that story finishes you move on with the next one yeah so he's seeing that aspect of it mm-hmm. and then about a year later, Terence Dix get the script gets the script editor job, mm. starting with the invasion. Funnily enough, 
Right. Which I've just looked up because yeah, I wasn't yeah, 100% no, sure. Yeah. So Terrence Dick starts with the invasion, which kind of proves preemptive of what he and Barry Letts are going to be landed with mm-hmm. when they start working yeah. together. Yeah. But Terrence Dix comes in and obviously in production terms, he's aware of all those problems, mm. which is going to lead on to him and Barry Letts fixing this together. Yeah. Because they're both aware of what the problems are. Mm-hmm. But Terrence Dix's other thing as well is he can see the problems with getting scripts in that are workable. Yes. So although when they come in and start working together in the 1970s, well, in 1969 production for a 1970 season, they're landed with this format yes. of the Doctor being stranded on Earth and having this fighting force behind him unit, which is essentially just two people in the 1970 season yes. being yeah. Liz Shaw and the Brigadier. Yeah. They also have seen what the issues are and they know... Or maybe they don't know what they can do with it, but they work out what they they can do. So it's interesting that both, yeah, you're right, both men have seen how not to do Doctor Who. Because the the monster season, the based on the siege season, it's it's lauded by fans, but actually you can't make a program, a continuous program that works. Only does that, yeah. Because it gets mundane and it lacks character as well, which Mm. I think. I think Terence, Barry Letts recognised. Terence Dix in the following season. He saw the disaster. the other way around. Yeah. I mean, the rest of his career on Doctor Who is really him trying to avoid getting into a situation he was in with the War Games and writing an episode a week to go out without having the end of the story. And, so, the, other, and the other thing that Terence Dick sees as well is because they're struggling with scripts and they're basically taking anything they can get. Hmm. Season six is a season of Doctor Who where basically anything goes because yeah. it's just what can we get on the screen? Yeah. So you've got yeah. things as wildly disparate as the Space Pirates and the Mind Robber, which was the hmm. story before Terrence Dick started, but which he yeah. must have seen. Yeah. And, you know, the invasion and God knows what else, the war yes. games, they're all so very different. It's it's odd that season five is is they're both seasons in crisis, but season five is one where they're all it's, the same. Is one where it's forged out of that, and it's become it's become samey. But then season six is real crisis, and it's so much crisis that they can't even make them the two same. stories no, the same. Yeah. No, yeah. Well, apart from the dominators and the crisis. But in a, in a way, they both kind of get get away with it. But it's clear that that what we see on screen isn't reflective necessarily of. The, the real pain of producing it, the real stress and pain of producing it. And what and their compromise is, instead of doing something where it's all so samey or something where it's also wildly different, mm. find a compromise in between. Yeah. And and this the real innovation is the unit family. Yeah. Because when Barry Letts takes over, he takes over ostensibly with the Silurians. Yeah. But at the time Barry Letts gets the job, the Silurians, the Ambassadors of Death and Inferno mm. are all, or the writers of those at least, are all locked in. Yeah. Now the scripts yeah. themselves go through some changes under Barry Letts. Increasingly as the season goes on, Silurians was probably barely changed at all by Barry yeah. Letts because it was literally in through the door mm. and you've got to organise the cash for this story and here are the seven scripts. Yeah. Yeah. Ambassadors of Death as we all know, is an absolute torrid nightmare because yeah. they've got a David Whittaker script they can't use. Then they've got Trevor Ray and Terence Dix and mm-hmm. Malcolm Hogg all rewriting it at yeah. various points to the mm-hmm. point at which it gets before the cameras. Yeah. So obviously Baron, Barry Letts 
had a certain amount of influence on that, mm. which I think shows mostly an amount of unit involvement. Yeah, possibly. I don't think it happened. I think season seven, season seven, you're still getting different. You're getting more cast members, but there's they seem to be different each. It's only each Inferno week, yeah. when actually it starts to be shaped like that. I think season seven also. I don't know. When I said unit involvement, I mean. All I meant was Ambassadors of Death is right. one where I know, unlike um, no, there's a lot of unit involvement in the other stories, yeah. but actually Ambassadors of Death is more action, more havoc. Yeah. Yes, yeah, which I, those, which strikes me as a barrier. Also, you get the feeling thing. that there that there's also uh, financial issues because they've switched to color, so so suddenly they're still in crisis, but it's a crisis of their own making because they're suddenly making it in color. It's more expensive. They've got less money. And somehow they've got, which is why there's only four stories, because obviously you have a set, big, large central set. Easier to balance the and, budget, yeah. And, and in, a, in a way, it's like season five. It's very, it's very standard. Uh, each story, well, certainly the three stories, Silurians, Ambassadors of Death and Inferno, they're very, very similar in the way that they're made, I think. The most interesting thing about season seven is Inferno, and it's the two things that Barry Letts and Terence Dix did put into that script. Right. Because Terence Dix is responsible... Insofar as I am aware of it, Terence Dix is responsible for the alternative Earth storyline mm-hmm. and Barry Letts is responsible for including the Primords. Okay. That sounds like so, it. yeah. And looking back at where they were in the 1960s when they'd worked on Doctor Who before they were working on it together, mm. the alternative Earth storyline... Ain't a million miles away from the War Games, no. which Terence Dix co-wrote. Yes. And the involvement of the Primords, we've got seven weeks, we need a monster in here, otherwise yeah. the kids are just going to drift away. Mm-hmm. That's Barry Letts looking at what he did with yeah. Enemy of the World and thinking, yeah, that was well, the I story do... that didn't have the monsters when every other story that year did. I mean, I do think of season seven as being as being not part of the Pertwee Proper yeah. Pertwee era is more season six B. Yeah, yeah. So like an extension because you know you've got seven episode long stories. You've got still got that kind of serialized feel. It's just because it's in color that it feels, and it's got a different leading actor that it feels that it feels that. Well, when we did the vote over the ten years about a, a year ago, was it? I think it was last summer on this podcast. I put series seven down as a Derek Sherwin series, right. and Barry Letts was seasons eight through to eleven. Right. So that just shows that I yeah, yeah. how much I agree. Yeah, I don't yeah. see season seven as being a Barry Letts no. season, but it's still tre- it's still tremendously good. Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. the, that's the thing. I mean, Inferno. <clears throat> it's not just me that likes Inferno. Inferno comes really highly ranked. Oh it's, yeah, and, uh, and Ambassadors of Death is rising in the ranks as well. So it's one of these. It's one of these sort of slow burn series, and for me, watching it, I don't, I don't get bored by it. I can watch the Silurians. I get bored by the first ten minutes of the Ambassadors of Death, right. which is just a man sitting in a chair looking at a CSO I, screen. I still quite like that because the man is is the man, the guy from Legopolis, the same guy from Legopolis. Um, no, it's he um, plays on the monitor and oh, does he? I think so. Yeah. Oh God, I'm going to have to look that up now. <laughs> I've got a TV guide in front of me. Two men look up. Yeah, <laughs> on, podcast. on podcast. It's <laughs> but season seven. The real question with season seven is, and this is the one that I always think, is season seven something that could be carried over 
Ronald Allen. And it's called. So he was in. Um, he played the Monitor in Legopolis. No, John Fraser played the Monitor in Legopolis. Oh. So what was Ronald Allen in Legopolis? I'm sure he was in. <laughs> maybe or was he in the Dominators? Oh yes, I think the problem. <laughs> oh, there goes one TV guide. I've kept mine. <clears throat> yes. Would, sorry. Would, yes. Would more of the same have been sustainable? No, no. You can't make. You can't make. The season seven works because because there's only effectively three stories in it that are the same. The the spared from space really does stand alone. Stands out completely and, from the others. I mean, the way it's made, but also the structure. Um, and season seven, uh, the first, so Spear from Space is possibly, possibly the sort of primer for for the series eight onward stories, I think. But it's that by accident. I don't think it's by intent. It's by. Well, going back to what we were saying before, is season seven, and season. The thing about season seven is we look at it back now. We look back on it now as fans, and we say it's four stories, but they're all great stories. Mm. But at the time. At the time, I would conject that maybe people watching it were enjoying it for mm. the characters, the Doctor yeah, and Liz yeah. and the Brigadier. But I'm not so sure that they were maybe enjoying the stories that much because, let's face it, it was seven weeks of the same thing followed mm. by seven weeks of the same thing followed by seven weeks of the same thing. Yeah, And the, not only were you getting the same thing for seven weeks, but all those three stories are pretty similar. So actually, you were getting... I think basically twenty one weeks of the same thing. I think they're similar in setup, which I find quite comforting, but not necessarily exciting. Um, but in terms of content, they do do different things with the stories. So they do feed they off do. different genres. So there's an apocalyptic one. There's the but I think there's a, the disease yeah, one, yeah. and those are quite exciting. I think if it wasn't for those bits, then it would be more season five like and you'd start mm. getting bored by by the end of it. But, but I'm thinking I, as I think a casual viewer, yeah. those things. Yeah, you've got the disease, and yeah. yeah, you've got the alternative Earth, mm. and those are probably just about the only things that are keeping your interest. Yeah, yeah. Although season seven was successful enough, mm. I mean, season seven, we don't have the viewing figures in front of us. As no. I recall, season seven was up to about eight million. Right, okay. From where it had dropped down to about four and a half. Right. So it's almost doubled its audience. Yeah. Part of that's because there's a new doctor. Yeah. Part of that's because it's now set on ostensibly present day earth yes and i do think as soon as you set something on present day earth and and you know this is part of russell t davis's whole raison d'etre of mm. always having recognizable humans yeah. in every story under peril so that the people at home can identify mm. with the people they're supposed to be identifying with yes. i think as soon as you set it on modern day earth you automatically add a new part to your audience because then all of a sudden people who like the Avengers but don't like Doctor Who also like Doctor Who do you know what I mean well yeah and also you say the Avengers it was also tapping into the kind of the ITC Avengers exactly, style yeah. quite consciously which mm. none of the Troutons did because yeah. Troughton wasn't that sort of character whereas John Pertwee John Pertwee you could do that with and Nicholas Corton you could do that with well, and Troughton, I think then you start to draw yeah. down new audiences well, well when Troughton was the Doctor it was very definitely very much a children's yeah, program. Yeah. And when John Pertwee takes over, 
It's not that John Pertwee's taken over, mm. but it's that it's moved into colour. Yeah. It's got this leading man who's yeah. all of a sudden much more like something out of Adam Adamant or mm. Jason King or something. Yes. Or all the ITC serials. Yeah. And it's set on modern day Earth and it looks more like the ITC mm-hmm. serials. Yes. So automatically it's gone from being a children's programme mm. to being a children's programme and a programme for grown-ups as I think, well. I think the colour could be overstating. I think the colour was more of a production issue because most people wouldn't Still have Still colour. Yeah, yeah, yeah no. so that, at that stage it was just costing more. But I think the filming, the balance of film to interiors, but obviously with Spearhead from Space. I mean, Spearhead mm. from Space is the kind of the perfect... That, that mistake with Spearhead from Space of doing it entirely on film yeah, but was perfect, a mm. perfect launch for that series because it's immediately referring to the ITC style and the Avengers yeah, yeah, yeah. style it's, it's, it was the, a really good season opener which is another thing that Barry Letts was, was great at so this is what I mean Barry Letts didn't do Spearhead from Space but in some ways Spearhead from Space is the first the first Barry Letts style series opener it's got the hook of the new Doctor the hook of the resolution of so War Games ends on a cliffhanger and this is a really kind of nifty nifty it's a jump resolution point in yeah that yeah respect, yeah yeah and it's done in film so it's it's kind of got all of these hooks and there's lots of film in the silurians yeah only in maybe two or three episodes of the silurians mm-hmm. but there's still lots yeah. there yeah there's lots in inferno and there's lots and lots in ambassadors of death yeah. and this is completely different because in the 60s when they're making it almost weekly yeah most of those st- stories are almost completely studio bound yeah and even the ones that do have a film in allocation there are ones that stand out, like The Invasion, where you will move into film maybe once an episode or twice an episode. But for the most part, even The Enemy of the World, yeah. its entire filming allocation is in its first episode. Yeah. And then you've got five episodes in the studio. And I, this is where I don't really remember what, what he did, but it was it was changing the model of production that Barry what he did, came up with. He had two, shot two episodes in, in a week he shot, and then yeah. rehearsed, and then that made more time for filming. He shot two episodes once a fortnight instead yes. of one episode a week. Yeah, yeah. So what you did was... Well, as you're about to say, you build your sets mm. for the two episodes mm. instead of having to strike and build the sets every week, mm-hmm. which means that I'm trying to think of an example now. Um, just thinking of what stories they do. And I'm trying to think of a good one that follows this rationale, but I can't think of one off the top of my head. Okay. Well, essentially, you can have a story... Okay, Planet of the Spiders is more or less his last story. Yeah. But Planet of the Spiders is a fairly good example. Mm. You don't get to Metabilis until the third episode. Yeah. So you don't... So for the first two weeks, which is one block, you don't need to build the Metabilis sets. No. So you only need to build the Metabilis sets twice. Yes. Yeah. Instead of four times. Yeah. Or if they'd have not been writing it under that regime. It's a pity they they built them at all, really. (laughs) If they just, instead of having the hovercraft, spending money on the hovercraft, they just spent money going to a quarry. It's the one time where you just wish they'd just gone to a quarry and painted the rocks green or something like that. Just anything other than having... But this was part of the criteria of writing Doctor Who at this time. It's Mm. like, if you've got a set... You either have it throughout the whole story yeah. or you have it in two episode yeah. blocks. Yeah. And then he changes. Barry Letts was actually responsible to the change where... Because what they would do is they would still record the episodes. And I think... I can't remember which story this started with. I don't think it... Maybe it did start with Silurians. Maybe he introduced it straight away. But I don't think he can have because 
you wouldn't get your foot in the door and make such a big change with your very first on your very first no, day of no. the it job. It was definitely in place by the invasion uh, by Inferno. Yeah, I know that. So it happened somewhere around that time. Yeah, but he was still recording the episodes in sequence. Mm-hmm. So you'd have all the sets built, and you'd still essentially record it like they were in I've the got 60s. A, I've got a feeling it is the Silurians because I think when they go they down into when they go down into the caves, I think that was recorded out of sequence. But again. If we'd done more preparation, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so well, we basically vague, decided vague, to do this on the spot, yeah, vaguely dragging up memories of. But later on, I think in season yeah. ten or eleven, mm. he introduces the recording according to sets as right. opposed okay. to according yeah. to episodes. Yeah, but that's on. That's not until almost he bails out. Right, but that's okay. the real, real big innovation. Yeah, that really yeah. frees up the mm. way they make the program. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, season eight then yeah. is where Let's and Dicks actually get to sit down and plan a season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the, the first time a producer and script editor had seemed to have planned a season. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they plan normally. They plan the first story, or they roughly sketch out the ideas for stories and abandon them. Well, they've never been time. able to before yeah. because the yeah. season's always been approximately forty-five yeah. weeks. Yeah. yeah, and you can never be thinking you. You've never been able to structure a season around mm. what your 45th week is going to yes, be yeah. when you're making it week well, by week. It's true. This is the first time we've got seasons, basically. Yeah. Before, we just had we just had a continuous block of production with occasional summer breaks. Yeah, basically. And that's yeah. not... That's not... And that's that's fine. It just means it's a more serialised programme. And that's actually quite quite nice. I mean, that's the appeal of the 1960s stories is... It's they're long serialized, so you can have stories like Dalek's Master Plan and stories like the War Games that that feel good. But yeah, this is the first. The first this is the first time. Yeah, this is season. the first time somebody's actually sat down and said, yeah. "Right, we've got twenty five episodes. What mm-hmm. do we do with them?" Yeah, and they're and you know they're what we're essentially saying is they're working on the demons at the same time as they're working on Terror of the Autons. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they're in completely different stages of yeah. the production. But they know when they go into the studios with Terror of the Autons, what's going to be at the other end of the season too. Yeah. Now, here's the interesting question then, because this is the point where Let's and Dicks actually put their heads together. Right. So we know Let's is a bit of a lefty and yeah. Dicks is a bit of a righty. Yeah. But we also know, and we, I mean, we've seen interviews with them together and everything else, and we absolutely know how well they got on. Yeah. So the question is for somebody who's such a lefty and somebody who's such a righty a how well do they get on Mm. or no we know how well they get on so how do they manage to get on so well yeah and b how does that translate into what gets onto the screen well i think i think uh let's is a lefty i think dicks probably isn't quite as much of a righty as let's is a lefty um, so actually, cer- certainly not into yeah. and also I don't think I don't think Dix is Letts is a very politicized person and he's very into putting on screen what he believes. Dix I think is more interested in putting on screen what's going to scare children and be fun. He's he's not going to put right wing propaganda on screen. So although having said that, I think a little bit of that bleeds through. Uh, Possibly, but I think Dix is always moderated by his writers. So it's more, mm. you look at Malcolm Hulk. So Malcolm Hulk and Terence Dix got along. Um, it's possibly more when Robert Holmes and Terence Dix work together than it pushes slightly or pulls slightly to the right. Yeah. It's only slightly to the right because the BBC is still a left-wing institution 
Essentially, Baroness yeah. is still in charge, exactly, and I think yeah. I think the left wing is still the natural the natural place for, or the centre left is still the natural place for Doctor Who, and I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, they all recognise this. So I'd I'd be very surprised. So it might sort of possibly something like Terror of the Autons is the example of of a time where it pushes pulls slightly to the right, or the sort of libertarian, the kind of anti-authority, Actually, anti-police. Yeah. The one story that strikes me as being the most right-wing at this time is The Mind of Evil. Right. Because, and I only say this because the, insofar as 1970s children's TV has a message of this kind, mm. and we see in Malcolm Holt's stories that it can, yeah. but it doesn't necessarily mean that it always will. Mind of Evil seems more conservative to me in that it seems to have the opposite message to A Clockwork Orange, in that what they're doing is, and it's, the mind of evil, there's some ridiculous notions in it, Mm. like evil can be distilled into a substance that can be withdrawn from the body or whatever. But what what the doctor's position in that story seems to be saying is, no, don't do these... um, PC, for want of a better expression, which wasn't invented at the time. But the, the the story seems to be saying, here are some people trying to do something that's politically correct. And income unit and the doctor and the master, as it goes, and show that up to be a fallacy. Possibly, although I think it's anti-capital punishment. So the thing that... So it, the whole it's thing is set up, set up to... So the, the, the Keller machine looks like a bit like an electric chair and there's... There's the sort of death row prisoners, and I think that's a very that's possibly either either Letts' influence or it's possibly quite it's quite a left wing I mean. thing. It's so it's definitely it's definitely that. I'm not sure about the right wing influences. Well, um, the doctor comes in and tells them their experiments are ridiculous. But then, if the experiments have already been equated with the death penalty, then that's the doctor actually being. No, being... no, the experiments are equated with getting rid of the death penalty. But the the Keller machine so the, the, rem- no, 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 remind the, me about Mind of Evil. Well, the <laughs> Mind of Evil starts out with the notion that you rehabilitate people, and it's you rehabilitate people through sci-fi techniques. But yes. it's basically you rehabilitate people, and the Doctor comes in and says, "No, what are you doing? That's mad." But the, but the rehabilitation looks very like looks very like capital punishment so you're not killing someone but you're killing off their personality yeah so which is what i mean it's kind confused of, yeah it is it is i mean it's quite interesting i mean i, I don't, i'm not sure it's, if it's confused but it's sort of it, it's yeah it's quite interesting it's mixed messages um, but i'm still not sure i'm not sure it's quite right wing i think no i'm not saying it's right wing no. i'm saying no, it's no, more no, right wing no. than malcolm Hulk. yeah well yeah <laughs> Yes, most yeah. things. Jeremy are. Corbyn is more right wing than Malcolm Holt. But so, the mind of evil is the one. I'm saying, if you look at it dispassionately, I don't think it's either right wing or left wing. I think yeah. it kind yeah, of yeah, confuses yeah. its yeah, politics. Yeah, yeah. But I'm saying it's the one story that, if you were right wing, mm. you could most point out yeah. and say that's the thing yeah. I agree with. Yes, I mean, always. I'm. I still think Terror of the Autons also has has little bits of that. In Do you know there, what it strikes me that is the undercurrent of the entire era that starts in season eight is kind of where Doctor Who begins, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Right. You've had tastes of it in like season five, and of course you've had tastes of it right back to the beginning. Yeah. But season eight's where it really begins. Mm-hmm. And 
what happens is you've got a season that we sometimes look at as the sort of day glow season yeah. because you've got Terror of the Autons and the Claws of Axos both quite prominent. But the other three stories are anything but Dayglow, mm. apart from Puff the Magic Dragon. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but the other three stories are, are quite as almost as doer and as grey as the stories in season seven were. Yeah. Which is not a complaint, just an observation. Mm-hmm. So season eight is not quite as Dayglow as we think of it. No. But it it gives us that impression because or those two stories. Glam is what yeah. We, yeah. yeah. But then you've also got and this kind of started with the Seelies in Spearhead from Space. Mm. But with the Seelies in Spearhead from Space, at least you kind of mm. had a notion of making them out to be real people. Yes. Whereas when you get to uh, Terror of the Autons, and, oh, forgive me, I can't remember the name, who takes the doll home and you meet his wife. Oh, um, yeah. Yes. And automatically, oh, I still yeah. have a program guard in front of me. I can look this up. Why not? Okay. But automatically, at that point, you're starting to get into the area where these characters are becoming caricatures. Yes. Yeah. Much more so than the Seelies were. And it's not. And it's not just. It's not just rural caricatures. It's also the Farrells. The Farrells. It's not just the rural caricatures. It's also the middle management caricatures and That's the upper class caricatures. Yeah. So it's sort of setting up, which Don't... is. Which is the Avengers, which is what the Avengers does. The Avengers yeah, play, plays on this kind of, it's not quite set on Earth. It's well, set this on is, Avenger land. With... If you look at the Silurians and the way it deals with those kind of mm. characters, it, again, does it in a far more realistic, yes. three-dimensional yeah. way. Yeah. By the time you get to the Claws of Axos, it's complete caricature from start to finish. Yes, yeah. And so my... Much more so than the sort of day-glow thing... And much more so than the production thing. And possibly nearly as much as the monster of the week thing, which I think is Doctor Who's defining characteristic. Mm. And, you know, Russell T. Davis was told when he brought back Doctor Who in 2005, in no uncertain terms, by the management at the BBC, monster in every story. Yes, yeah, that was one of the laws that was laid down to him, mm-hmm. in, to the best of my knowledge. Yes, but almost as much as that, what Barry Letts and Terence Dix introduce in season eight, which is carried forward until season seventeen. Yes, when in season eighteen, John Nathan Turner thinks it's got out of hand and gets rid of it. They introduce a level of humour, and I always think of sort of seasons 8 to 11 and this is almost a non sequitur because it doesn't follow the way I describe it well I call it Last of the Summer Wine in Space right because that's how the humour Pigbin Josh yes your primary example but all those caricatures of all those characters last the entire John Pertwee period Mm. right up to your Mummusa aliens in Planet of the Spiders Mm. it's right and Professor Kettlewell in Robot it's right there all the way through there's this and this is the sort of conservative thing as far as Mm. I'm concerned there's a conservative humour that runs right through that period that underpins it that I think becomes and you know when Russell T Davis brings it back and people moan now about Stephen Moffat's humour but I think that humour underpins the drama and becomes an essential part of the recipe. Right. And that was certainly not the case throughout the 1960s. Yes. And I think I'm not going to say this is their most important innovation but but what I will say is 
I don't think this innovation is seen as an innovation. I think mm. people disregard it and don't even notice it. Yeah. But I think it's there very yes. definitely. And I think it's hugely important. Yes. And it also feels like Dix. It feels like yeah. something that Terence Dix... If you read Terence Dix's novels after mm. the case, he's very keen on on simplifying characters to their basic elements. So he's not he's not one for nuance. No. Or for or for sort of complexity. I mean but but that's that I think and you can see that in the war games as well. So the the war games is full of of German soldiers doing what you'd imagine German soldiers would do and and people Scottish like, soldiers doing what you'd imagine Scottish soldiers would do. And people do, like so. Lieutenant Carstairs being yes. their absolute definition of a stiff upper lip yeah, English yeah, toss yeah, yeah. tough. And I think on the battlefield, I think yeah. this is definitely Dix's both Dix's weakness and his strength as a writer. In a sense, it's his weakness because it creates caricatures which are uncomfortable, but it's his strength because you then don't have to worry about the characters. You can get on with the fun plots and and also the thing about it is, and I think the making you uncomfortable thing is something that's kind of retrospective again mm. at the time I think what yeah. it does is it makes the sci-fi palatable yes. for a non-sci-fi yeah. audience yeah. and yeah. of course Doctor Who at this point is your absolute definition of your mainstream early Saturday evening mm. success yes yeah and you can see the effect. Mm. The effect also has an influence on the main characters as well because you can see where the master comes from the master is one of these caricatured mm. Characters. Except I mean, he's, he's just played brilliantly by yeah, Roger yeah, Delgado. Yeah, yeah. yeah, which always helps. And the same with the brigadier. You slow the, see the brigadier slowly morphing into a caricature by the end. Yeah. Which, again, again, it's sort of criticised, but also praised in equal measure because you know it, it that's works, a likable. It, yeah. He becomes a likable character by the, by um Planet of the Spiders. It's all about the casting, in fact. Yeah. Yeah, it, you yes, know, in yeah, terms of those yeah. regular characters, yeah. Pig being Josh possibly wasn't the greatest. <laughs> the greatest Carthy wasn't the most enigmatic character. No, but with those regular characters, and of course that's the other innovation in season eight. They bring in, well, they don't bring in Benton, but they promote mm. Benton to being a regular because I yeah. think he's been in one story, possibly no two at this point. He was in Ambassadors. He was in Ambassadors yeah. and Inferno, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. So he's promoted to a regular mm-hmm. because I think it's well, he was in Invasion as well, but. Yeah, but not as not a, a yeah 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 not yeah. as a human being. No, no, he's an invasion. Oh, is he as a as an he's extra? A, as a, as a, he yeah. was as Benton. He was as Benton. Yeah. Oh, he got promoted to have a line because somebody didn't turn yeah. up or something. Yeah, something like that. Oh no, because it, it was a camp. He was a Canfield. Yeah, a Canfield that's right. babe. <laughs> no, he gets promoted to having a line in ambassadors. Okay. Oh right. In ambassadors, okay. he was okay. just an extra. Oh right. Okay. And he gets yes. promoted to having a line. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And that's where the character kind of comes from. Yes. Because Thank all of a sudden he's... Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and then Captain Yates. They bring in Captain Yates. Yeah. And the story goes that they bring in Captain Yates to try and be a romantic interest for Joe. But actually, and people take the mickey now out of Captain Yates because yes. we all know what Richard Franklin's like. Yes. But we didn't know that at the time. No. And I think the character of Captain Yates works really well. Yeah. Benton is a sergeant. He's been promoted up through the ranks. Mm. So he's essentially gone into the army as a grunt. Yes. So you'd expect him to be, for want of a better expression, a working class character. Mm. Mike Yates, on the other hand, is a captain. So yes. he's presumably been promoted in through university or whatever, yeah. through yeah. army training corps. Yeah. yeah. So you wouldn't expect him to be working class like Benton is. You'd expect him to be middle class and a bit toffee-nosed. Yeah. And Richard Franklin plays that perfectly. Mm. And I think the balance between those two characters, I think, I think again, this is something that, 
occasionally gets missed. I think the balance between those two characters is lovely. Yes. Yeah. In that you've got Benton, who's very much salt of the earth, mm. and Yates, who's very much the opposite. Yeah. And I think they play off each other beautifully. And it, and find a middle ground. Yeah. And it's mirrored by the the um, relationship between the Doctor and the Brigadier. Because that's the other, yeah. that's the other flip side, and Joe Grant moves between the two sets of characters. Mm. That's how the nine, that's how the demons works, and that's how, well, that's how Terror of the Autons works as well. <clears throat> and um, actually, by the end of the demons, they've pretty much told that story, mm. and from that point onwards, Unit are kind of relegated to recurring guest characters as opposed yeah, to regulars. Yes, yeah, having set up the amazing format of the Unit, yeah. they then try to sort of weed it out as slowly as possible, which mm. is a bit of a shame. But actually, there's enough of that story across those four stories yeah, in yeah. Um, Season 8 that you don't really need it anymore. And also, Season 8 consolidates the popularity. So it consolidates what the public think of Doctor Who now. So by the end of Season 8, such as its success, then it's suddenly become a fixture again. And they can move back towards perhaps a simpler... They can take unit out. They can make it less earthbound and start doing more interesting yeah, yeah. stories away from Earth because they can, because they know they've, they're bringing the audience with them and they've got the trust of the audience. And because them. it's underpinned by two things, and this is and one is the humour I was talking about just now, and the other one is when they do go into outer space, they relate the concerns of those stories to the concerns of the people watching it on television at the time. Mm-hmm. So... Um, although the analogy doesn't quite work perfectly, you've got the curse of Peladon, which mm. relates something that the British public were going through at the time. Yeah, you've got, and then other things relate to the breakup of the Empire, mm-hmm. which you know, kids watching the stories are watching it for the aliens. Yeah. Grown-ups watching the stories need something they can relate to. Yes. Most of the grown-ups watching the stories will have seen the British Empire breaking up in the 1950s and the 1960s. Yes. So stories like um, The Mutants mm. and like Colony in Space mm-hmm. as well yeah. will have um, undercurrents that the grown-ups watching can relate to. Yeah. So they've underpinned... So Let's and Dicks not only have said, right, this is how Doctor Who shouldn't work. Mm. And this is how Doctor Who shouldn't work. Let's yes. find a middle ground where it does. They've also added on top of that. So they're not just making a Doctor Who that's palatable to an audience. Mm. They're also making a Doctor Who that's actually catching an audience and making them want to watch as opposed to just being happy to watch. And Day of the Daleks is a good example of that. because So, so what I see now is Dix is putting it in the adventure story direction and Let's is the politicised... Let's add something that's actually just, happening in the air world. Yeah. And if you've got Malcolm Hawk writing a story, then that's they're both on the same team, and Let's is sort of adding the drama. In Day of the Daleks, you have effectively Israeli terrorists mm. pulling, or Palestinian terrorists yes, pulling yes. it in that direction, and then you've got Terence Dix with the Daleks and and the Ogrons pulling it in this direction, and suddenly you've got quite a well balanced story. Yeah. That does what exactly what you're saying it does. It, it refers to something that's happening in the real world. It's got peace conferences. And it's yes, got, exactly. It's got this kind of moral moral story about about how you really shouldn't blow up peace conferences if you <laughs> if you yeah. want if you want the world to be saved. Um, and anti also anti nuclear war as well, which is you know the bizarre idea in the seventies that nuclear war was a bad thing. Um, so th- so this works quite well, I think. Yeah, absolutely, and. And well, I think that, and I think that's my point about Dix's politics not being, not being really an issue when he's writing as much as 
Letts's politics was. I don't yeah, think no. it's a question of them. No, I think Dix's politics is what direction. shows in the characterisation. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think he's I'm, a conservative writer, conservative with a small C. Yeah, possibly. that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. his big C conservatism shows up as small C conservatism. Yes, yeah, and actually, it's probably been revealed more more recently in yeah, reaction yes. to this kind of political correctness. But I think liberal. what that does is helps with the balance. Yes, yeah. I think there's... I think, you know, you're talking about a Buddhist producer, mm-hmm. which is all about balance, isn't it? Yes, yeah. And so... Um, but what you're having here is, whether by accident or by design, mm. the partnership between Let's and Dix is actually yeah. causing a huge amount of balance in the programme yeah. yeah. that the programme's never had before. No. I mean, even... You go back to... Um, the first two seasons and there's kind of you know the future past future past thing mm. and one will be a story about morals and one will be a story about historical characters and all this kind of thing mm. and you look at it and you know your ostentatious thought is there's a balance going on there because they're addressing this then that then that then that yeah but actually what you're not getting is any kind of a balance what you're getting instead is one story will do one thing, mm. and then another story will do something else entirely. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing with Let's and Dicks is they have a team of writers, and especially by the time you get to season 10 and season 11, and you've literally almost got the same five writers mm. writing the five stories across, well, basically the last, well, almost all four years that they did it, really. Yeah. There's a team of different people who come in, and each of these different people have got different kinds of concerns. Mm. So you've got um, Terry Nation yes. comes in and writes the Dalek story, yeah. which is the gung-ho action-adventure boys' mm-hmm. own stuff. Yeah. But you've got, more importantly, Robert Holmes, mm-hmm. who's an ex-copper, yeah. and who's a very sardonic writer, mm-hmm. but he's very far from being politically a writer who's sort of actively puts his politics into his writing. No, he, in draws, way that... he draws from 1930s adventure serials, which, yeah. you know, Dan Dare kind of wrote. And he's kind of got, in a certain way, some of the politics of his old job going on, mm. in that, as a policeman, you're kind of dangling between wanting to do the right thing in a sort of slightly lefty kind of a way mm. and wanting to do the establishment thing in a slightly righty sort of a way. Yeah. Having to follow the rules, but having to... And this is like a horrible generalisation on my part. Having to follow the rules because mm. you're upholding the law. Yeah. But by the same time, in order to uphold the law, and this is p- probably more true of detectives than beat policemen Mm. but in order to uphold the law you kind of have to see through the law in order to find the people who are breaking the law if you you see what I mean yeah I think being a policeman particularly at that time um, gives you a clear sense of duty but it also gives you a very jaded cynical view of the world because you're seeing you're seeing effectively particularly in London you're seeing things like the craze and and gang warfare and you see corruption and you see corruption in the police force which we now know about in the 60s, 70s and 80s the police was just about as corrupt as the, the gangs the gang they <laughs> yeah. were fighting against. And but I think also, that, yeah, and it also gives Robert Holmes a very clear sense of character. Yes, yeah, and it and it gives him his sense of humour as well. Because exactly, yeah. being a policeman, you have a very black, morbid sense of humour, and that that comes out throughout every story he writes. Yeah, is this absolutely. kind of black sense of humour, and you need someone like potentially. I mean, this is difficult because. And it's interesting to see the relation, to look at the relationships between producer and script editor throughout the series, 
and see how how it kind of shaped the stories. And I think with with Letts and Dix and Robert Holmes, Holmes writing, you did get a balance, a neat balance. So those stories, those three seasons, are really consistent, and they never they never move towards excess. I mean, Terror of the Autons sort of tips towards it, but then they pull it back afterwards. And that was Barry Letts's Barry Letts's job to pull it back. Whereas Hinchcliffe and Holmes, fantastic, they're fantastic, but at the same time. Um, something like Talons of Wen Chiang, Deadly Assassin, they are excessive. They are they yeah, have yeah. gone they have gone completely to an extreme. Mm. Which There's no which, sense of balance which, anymore. No. But it's it works. I think if they'd gone on for for longer than than Talons of Wen Chiang, it, I think it would start getting into it's a bit like um James Bond. It gets every, to the area of self parody. Yeah, every time every so often James Bond and it's done it again. Every so often James Bond gets more and more confident and gets to a stage where it produces something like uh, Moonraker or Diamonds of Forever or or possibly Spectre or die, die, yeah. another, die Another Day where it goes to an extreme and then it has to get pared back and simplified. It needs to reboot itself. Yeah, the difference with Hinchcliffe and Holmes is they didn't quite get to that stage. They Hinchcliffe got out before no, that Talons of Wang Chang is possibly the best Doctor Who story ever, but yeah. it's a very fine line between yeah, being yeah, a complete yeah, yeah. self parody. It's a it's a tightrope, but they just about mm. they just about manage it. And part of it's that's Tom Baker's performance. Tom Actually I wanna go into the subject. I want to okay. come back to Robert Holmes in okay. a minute, because it's something I particularly want to bring up about him. Mm. But yeah, so you've got Robert Holmes. Yeah. You've got Terry Nation comes in. He's not yes. here at okay. um, seasons eight or nine, but he comes in from season ten. Yeah. You've got Malcolm Hulk, mm -hmm. who's doing the who's doing the political ones, but yeah. also he's also very aware of the fact that this is an adventure serial for boys. Yes. Yeah. So he's you know you've got reptile monsters in every mm -hmm. story, and you know Colony in Space is kind of a cowboys and Indians yeah. with. You know, proper shades of politics. Yes, and but his but but his politics and his politics tends to tends to um, distract from the fact that he was also a really good structuralist. Mm. So something like Invasion of the Dinosaurs is an amazingly oh, structured yeah. story. And well, I, like I think it's probably it's pretty, I think Invasion of the Dinosaurs is probably my favourite Malcolm Holt yeah. story, yeah, and almost yeah. my favourite Pertwee story from when I saw it quite recently. I just watched it and every cliffhanger and moves it on. And there's a twist after each one, and it really projects you through the story. Actually, people complain that the twists are all the same in that. Oh, such and such is a double agent. Oh, such and such is a double agent. But the big twist in that story is what happens to Sarah Jane, and that's got nothing to do with double agents. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's the you know the big turning point. I mean, cliffhangers story, are always yeah. are always similar. Mm. But actually, I think he gets away with it because he does different things with those. Yeah. With those dramatic situations, well, something he presumably learned on the war games. Yeah, because the yeah. war games, the war brilliant. Games, yeah, it yeah, keeps the yeah. story ticking over for ten weeks, almost miraculously. Yeah. I mean, it shouldn't. It shouldn't be able to do it, but, but it somehow they got away with it. But then, okay, then Malcolm Hart. You've yeah. also got Bob Baker and Dave Martin. <laughs> yeah. No, I Bob Baker and Dave Martin. There's a lot of Nicky taken out of those two, but yeah. I think their ideas are very good Doctor Who ideas. Yes. I think the issue is that their writing of character isn't as um, three-dimensional as, say, right. Malcolm Holtz is. Yeah. But I don't... I think that's an issue that's arisen since, you know, Doctor Who went off the air in 1989. Right. I don't think that was remotely an issue at the time. 
I think those are... If you were watching Doctor Who in the early 1970s, mm. I think the Bob Baker and Dave Martin stories were the ones you looked forward to. Possibly. Possibly. All I know is right now, in today, <laughs> I don't like... I don't really... Well, I like them all, but I don't love any of them. Like the, you do the, the others. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The closest I come to is, is Hand of Fear, the, the opening episodes of Hand of Fear. That's about as close as I come to... L- really liking a Bob Baker, Dave Martin. But actually, you look at the ones they did during the period we're talking about. Yeah. Claws of Axos is quintessential Doctor Who. Right. And while we look at it now and think it's highly caricatured mm. and that they, with the concepts they were using, they'd bit off way more than they could chew. Yeah. To an audience of six to 12 year olds watching back in 1971, Claws yeah. of Axos was glorious yeah. Doctor yeah. Who. And the same with the three Doctors. The three Doctors mm. would be pant-wettingly exciting. Yeah, and I can accept it. I can accept that. And actually, if I was watching it at the time, one episode a week, without knowing what was coming up, then and if you were then six, I would be hugely well. Probably even if I was <laughs> even now. Oh right, yeah, maybe. I would be really excited, um, and I would ignore the the sort of gel guards and the slightly uninspiring, you know, yeah, yeah, just the fact that they bring Patrick Troughton back, but they don't really do anything interesting with him. So I think Baker and Martin have. Vastly underrated these days. Mm. I think at the time they were perfect for the program. Okay, and I don't. And I don't think this. Well, he, Claws of Axos. Now we sneer at it, but at the time I think it was a great Doctor Who story. Three Doctors. It works. Yeah. yeah. In spite of whatever problems, mostly budgetary, there are with it, it yeah. works. Yeah. The mutants, I think, comes off badly. But even, again, at the time, I think the mutants would probably, for most of the kids watching, mm. have been quite an exciting Doctor Who story. I've seen the mutants once. I think it's the, the story that I've seen least yeah. out of possibly the whole, the whole of Doctor Who. Oh, right. Okay, I didn't yeah. mind it. I didn't mind the mutants too much. I quite like the... I thought the... Um, the idea, the actual science fiction idea towards the end was quite an interesting one and well executed. I think the mutants is their Malcolm Hulk story, and right, I think it yeah. sits badly next to Malcolm Hulk stories. Yeah, it is a bit colony in spacey. Yeah, yeah it's kind of yeah. colony in space meets frontier in space yes. in a way. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's why it's probably it's pro- why it was probably so quickly mm. forgotten. Yeah, late to be novelised. Nobody really cared about it. Yeah, yeah. Of course, the other two that. Uh, we need to talk about in terms of the writers. Let's and Slim. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's two two interesting things about the Let's and Sloman stories. Mm-hmm. And I'll get to the more obvious one, which is yet another innovation right. in a minute. But the first one is... Okay, so re- just remind me. So we've got, um, we've got the demons. The we've time got monster. The time monster, planet of the spiders. Green death. And the green death. Okay, okay. Well, the oh, first actually, that's not as bad as I thought. I thought they were pretty unsuccessful, but actually, three of those are quite successful. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. the fourth one, the Time Monster. Mm. I'm not Time I'm, Monster's all right. We're not really here to talk about whether they're no, good stories no. or not, but I suppose we'll get into that as well. Yeah. But I think the Time Monster actually works almost, almost funnily enough, as we were mentioning earlier, almost as a self-parody. Right. Okay. Time Monster is almost taking the mickey out of Doctor Who. Yeah. Unintentionally, presumably, but it's almost like... And it really is like, carry on Doctor Who. Yeah. But anyway, the the thing about Let's and Sloman is, this is, and this is a thought that's just occurred to me, this is Let's without dicks. (laughs) Because, you know, I mean, 
I'm assuming that if Lex goes off and writes a story with um, Robert Sloman, it doesn't therefore come back to Terrence Dix to sort of rewrite or hone or finesse or whatever. I'd, I'd guess. I think with the relationship between Lex and Dix and with the fact that that I think Letts was the sort of person to try and keep his writing separate from his producing, which is why he had Robert Sloman. And his directing as well, of course. Yeah, yeah which yeah. is why he had Robert Sloman in. Well, I'd imagine I... that Dix would have input into the script. I mean, well, it might not I'm be guessing... quite as easy as the rest of them. To... Well, what I'm guessing is, because from what I gather, Barry Letts would lay down the plot and then mm. Robert Sloman would actually write the script. Yeah. I don't think it's quite as black and white as that, but I think that is basically the system they used yeah. so that Barry Letts could carry on producing while Robert Sloman was typing away. Mm-hmm. But I've got to assume that if Barry Letts goes to Robert Sloman and says, right, let's do a story yeah. and let's work through the plot and what have you, A, Terence Dix isn't in the room, but B, the ghost of Terence Dix is in the room. Yes. Because Barry Letts won't just go to Robert Sloman and say, let's do a story this is what happens. Yeah. He'll also be saying to Robert Sloman, and these are the other four stories we're working on this year, mm. and this is how they work, yeah. and this is how the characterization works, mm. and all these other things. So Robert Sloman's probably picking it up through osmosis and becoming yeah. well, the this is, It's also, this is an interesting part of Doctor Who because you have two types of producer. You have the writing producer, and then you have the business producer. So someone like JNT couldn't write for Toffee, which we know, and he admitted himself, well, mm. I don't know, if he couldn't write for Toffee, he's probably... <laughs> he, he admitted himself writing wasn't his strong point, so he relied on script editors. Yeah, yeah. So if this was a JNT, Andrew Cartmel situation, or Eric Sayward situation, then yes, taking Eric Sayward out of the, equa- out of the equation... Would result in would disaster. Would result in disaster, but also result in pure JNT yeah, writing. Yeah, yeah. With Barry Letts and Terence Dix, I get the feeling that because Barry Letts is a writing producer... The, the script editing was mostly Terence Dix, but Barry Letts did script yeah, 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 as yeah. well at the same time. So it's almost like it's sort of a, it's kind of a fusion between the two. Ah, yeah, I yeah, think. yeah. And actually, that 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 kind of distinction and and Philip Hinchcliffe is a bit of a writing producer as well because well, he did he, a couple of novelizations. Yeah, as yeah. Well. And also, he was going to have written a story. And he did a big finish. I mean, he's written for Big Finish, hasn't he? Yeah, or the story that he and, was going to write for season yes, fifteen. Yeah. So that's that's kind of that's kind of a similar working relationship, and it seems to me that they're possibly that's possibly there's the a lot more fluidity the between the two jobs. Yeah, successful yeah. relationship is when when they're both. I mean, with Barry Letts though, you had this. He was almost a better producer. Well, I think he was a better producer than Philip Hinchcliffe because he was a writing producer, but he was also a fantastic business producer. So he had the kind of the business acumen of J and T. And the the script abilities of Hinchcliffe, or I can't think of another well, another editor. writer. Yeah, and but he combined them perfectly. He dovetailed them perfectly. And and for a for a producer, they didn't produce the best stories in the whole run of Doctor Who, but they produced the most consistent stories. Well, what they did was, <clears throat> and talking specifically about those Sloman let scripts mm, yes, now, yeah. Those four stories then, when this is more of a question rather than an observation, are they the purest distillation of Barry Letts, Terence Dix, Doctor Who? Um, po- possibly. It's also difficult to separate out the fact that they were they were end of season stories. Well, that was the second point. The so, innovation. So, yeah. but I think that's that feeds that 
that affects the first point because because they're clearly framed as special stories, just like yeah. the season openers. This is another thing that Barry Letts did. Well, yeah, he recognised season openers, series closers, um, which you couldn't do in the past because, as we've said, you had forty x forty week long seasons, so there's no such thing really as a season opener or a season. The closer, only but... actually, just to go off on a complete tangent, just for a second, the only season finale prior to the War Games, mm. which became the season finale by default, yeah. that you'd had was Evil of the Daleks. Right. And that was basically a season finale by accident yeah. because the rights to the Daleks were being withdrawn, so they mm. wanted to go out that year with a bang. Yes, yeah. So yeah. that's a sort of season finale by default. And it yes. certainly wasn't any kind of... Um, Oh, God, again, I can't think of the word. Um, Lee's gone off sick this week, but I'm not feeling 100% either. Okay. So I'm even worse at remembering the words than usual. Right. But it wasn't a distillation of what had been going on through the year yes, in yeah. season four. No. Whereas the demons, the time monster, uh, the green death, and planet of the spiders are slightly more... I mean, in actual fact, I think you're right in the sense that they're, they're, each episode, each of those stories is a kind of a distillation of a particular type of Pertwee story. Yeah. So the demons is a distance, the sort of perfect platonic, platonic ideal of a master unit story. Planet of the Spiders is, or um, the Green Death is the perfect platonic ideal of a kind of Malcolm Hulkey politicized hippie, hippie story. And then Planet of the Spiders is the perfect distillation of another type. Yeah. So, yeah. so really you do get, yeah, yeah, possibly you're right. Yeah, and whether that's deliberately the case hmm. or whether that's just because, you know, Barry Letts and Terence Dix and Robert Sloman, presumably through osmosis, hmm. are kind of inured in what they're doing. Yes. And so yeah. it's just, to use that word again, getting distilled through there almost subconsciously so that they're doing hmm. this kind of thing. Because, I mean, they're very ostentatiously doing season finales. Yes. Yeah. The same way as... Barry Letts deliberately plugs the Daleks into Day of the Daleks to ostentatiously mm. do a, a, a curtain raiser for the season. Yeah. So there's obviously that thing going on. Yeah. But what's actually going into those stories, apart from Barry Letts's, with the exception of um, The Green Death, where he goes very, very much deliberately in the environmental direction. Mm. But with the other three stories, there's a, the, the religious themes are coming through. Because yes. the Poetry years, they're politicised, but in being politicised with a small p, yes. you're also addressing all sorts of other concerns, like religion. Yeah. Religion is a concern that you almost can't escape from if you're doing things politically with a yeah. small p. Yeah, although with the demons and the time monster, it's actually sort of paganism and the occult, rather mm. than... Yeah, yeah. But, but in a, a way, that's... It's got a weird obsession with, with kind of Greek with Greece as as well, which comes out in the in the Time Monster and also in later stories that well, there he are after of it. after he finishes. Well, the so, references to it all through Letts and Dicks, I think. Well yes. and not um I don't mean um literally references to it. Yeah. But I think that's that's kind of a th sort of underlying theme of the era is that they're kind of there's there's a kind of classicism yeah, yeah. The kind of underpinned. Which is something you find in the 1970s as well. Because mm. there's a, a rebirth or reborn interest in occultism. So it's a sort of post-Dennis Wheatley. Dennis mm. Wheatley thing where they're trying to find the origins 
of a true religion and they start looking in pre-Christian religions yeah, yeah, yeah. and try to make connections. And the, the time the time monster is about making this connection between the classical and the modern. Mm. Rather than asking whether they're good stories, mm. are those for successful season finales? Because, I mean, we with the new series, we've seen a whole new type of season finale in Doctor Who. Yeah. And after Barry Letts... Philip Hinchcliffe did it to an extent mm. with Robert Holmes, presumably yeah. because Robert Holmes was coming out of having worked across the bird three years. Mm. So you, uh, with your season, and they only did three seasons, and the first season got cut short. Yes. So the yeah, yeah. six-part story at the end never turned up. Yeah. But Terror of the Zygons was supposed to be the six-part finale to mm-hmm. season 12. Yeah. Then you've got Seeds of Doom, yeah. season 13, yeah. Talents of Wang Chang, season 14. Yeah. They're not distilling any of the themes of those series. They're literally just putting a big six-parter at the end. Yes, and and also, and I think it's a similar thing with Barry Letts, um, in that they they create a series close-up by throwing money at it. And clearly, I mean, particularly Planet Earth, it's, it's difficult because they do work as season closers, but they work as season closers because they've got something momentous happening in each one. Apart from the time, the time monster. No, the time monster pretty much does because it's got the whole. It's the time monster is in a way the climax to the master story. Right. It starts off really poorly. I mean, I thought I thought the demons was the climax to the master story. It just so happens that because he was so successful, they brought him back almost immediately. Yeah. No, I but think it was sort of. I think. If you, I think Life on Mars is quite a good example of this. Right. If you look at the first series of Life on Mars, mm. the last episode of that first series is like the closing chapter of the first book of the trilogy. Yeah. Whereas the closing episode of the second series is the final chapter of the final book. Yes. And to me, The Demons feels like the final chapter in the first book of a tri- trilogy. Yeah. And the whole, the, the whole, not the time ram thing, but mm. the meeting with the Cronivore at the end of Time Monster mm. feels to me like the end of the Master's story. Right. So when yes. he comes back in Frontier in Space, he doesn't get a good send-off. Yes. If Time Monster had been a better story and yes. he hadn't come back after that, yeah. I think the Time Monster would have been the perfect finish for that character. You'd either want that or you'd want uh, Roger Delgado not to die. Yeah, and yeah, then absolutely. then actually... Then Turn up in the story. Of the Spiders. Yeah. Um, but obviously, Planet of the Spiders, Planet of Spiders, Planet of the Planet Spiders. of the Spiders, Planet of the Spiders is a successful season season finale. But that's because it's doing such such big things, huge things, and yeah. it's also tying up a lot of a lot of storylines, a lot of strands, and the Green Death is as well. So, so in that sense, I think they're they're probably the two most successful ones. The Demons is a special case; it's a successful season finale. Because it was clearly so much fun to work on. It felt like a party. It's like a dry run for the three that follow it. Yeah. Demons. The Demons feels like the people who are making the programme saying, let's take this series out with a bang. Mm. And just taking the series out with a bang without doing anything with that. Yeah. Whereas the Time Monster, the Green Death and Planet of the Spiders. And I think the Time Monster, actually more so than the Green Death, right. all do something with that. Right. I think yeah. the Time Monster does it really badly, but I really do think, actually, if you look at the Time Monster and what it does with all the characters, mm. it, I think it's supposed to be Barry Letts' big season finale, where he 
really does tie up a lot of stuff. I didn't remember them putting Benton in a nappy. That was the last. I know. Which isn't which isn't the big bang that you really I know. It's, it's so ill-judged. I, I think maybe I'd have to watch it again. You might be right. But from my memories of it... I'm struggling to see it as being an effective season. I tell you what, and it's time it might be masked is. by the bad execution. Yeah, but but it's masked but so I, badly. I by know. The bad but I tell you what, it is. It's oh. the Horns of Nymon. Right. The Horns of Nymon's got a great script. Yes. But it's so badly executed. Yeah. It's like one of the worst stories of all time. Yeah. You know, I'm exaggerating for effect, but mm. well, no, I'm not even exaggerating all that so, much for effect, so, am I? So Horns of Nymon, I've seen. I've seen recently because yes, I'm writing. Yes. I'm writing about it. And I loved it much more this time round, and I loved it much more than the Dominators, the Chase, and uh, the other ones. What was the doing, other? Yeah. yeah, the Android Invasion. The Android Invasion. I actually prefer it to the Android Invasion, and I think, and I don't, I don't subscribe to this idea that something can be so bad it's good. I think if it's no, it can I, be so I good think, bad it's fun. Yeah, yeah, and I think it is, it is fun, but also, I think, I think the, the, the acting, and also the. The position of Romana, this is off topic, but the position of Romana in Horns of the Nymon and the amount that she's given to do. It's very interesting. And the amount that she's she's kind of taking over from Tom Baker as yeah. as an effective doctor, as Tom Baker's slowly unwinding into insanity. Mm. And that's really that's really good and it's really progressive. And Lala Ward does it really well. I mean, she's fantastic in Horns of Nymon. And I really like um I really like Graham Crowden as well. I th- I think I think for for what he what he needs to do, he did in that story. I think you need to rewatch the Time Monster because I think you probably have the same reaction to that. Although the difference is, I think the Horns of Nymon's got a good script. Yes, that's really badly produced. Yeah, and I think the Time Monster's got a bad script. that's yeah. fairly I well produced. The, the Time Monster, I struggled, I struggled to get through because it's quite sluggish. And repetitive, <clears throat> and slightly Ill- illogical, and I really don't like the scientists in it. They're, okay, they're I no think they're really funny. <laughs> I, th- I think they're funny, but they're they're, they're, they're kind of appallingly characterised. Well, the, the the male scientist is like he stumbled in from a completely different series, like a sitcom. Yeah, yeah, and w- which which kind of I suppose Graham Crowden did in Horns of Night. Yeah, yeah, but, but a different but kind then, of sitcom. But then he was just following Tom Baker's lead, so he mm. and Tom Baker were clearly balancing one another. And that works at that She's period. called Ruth. I can't think of his name. Ad, not Adam. That's uh, no, I'm going to look it up. of the Fendal. Is she called Ruth even? I'm not sure. Here yeah, I think it is Ruth. I think it is Ruth. I think you're right with that. Uh, yes. Miles. He's got... <laughs> Stuart. Stuart. Oh, yeah. It was what I knew it was one of those things. Yeah. Ian Collier, who played... Um, Omega. Omega. There we go. In Ark of Infinity. Yes, yes. Um... <clears throat> I think, yeah. and I think this is in the demons, but I think this gets um, forgotten about in the demons because the scary stuff's so effective. Mm. But I do think these four season finales do all have this last of the summer wine in space essence that I was talking about. Right. That Terence Dick seems to have brought in, and that's what I find curious about them mm. is that here's let's potentially doing it almost without Terrence Dicks, mm. but he keeps the Terrence Dicks stuff. Yeah. you see what I mean? Yeah. If yeah. you can define anything that those two did together as one well, coming from yeah. one and I mean, the other coming that's from the, the other. That's the biggest challenge is with all of these things and in the modern series is working out who's written it because it's almost impossible. 
it's almost impossible to tease because you're talking about individual lines at times and yeah, individual yeah, plot yeah. points. These are collaborative mm. scripts. And we know now, actually, that Terence Dix did a lot more rewriting of people's mm-hmm. scripts than we've sort of previously assumed. Yes. Because yeah. I think, I'm not sure he entirely admitted it, but I think he said something that left that implication mm. open to be easily read or something. Must have, and it's interesting in that period that you don't get a Terence Dix script. No, you don't. He didn't give himself his own script, and that's quite quite unusual. I think. Well, it hadn't been unusual to that point. Well, you've got David. David Whitaker wrote scripts, but mostly and... after he'd left, because he was only script editor for a year. Okay. And the only one he wrote during that year was when he absolutely had to right. to fill two yeah. wigs because the Marco okay. Polo okay. sets weren't yeah. built. Yeah. Okay. So it's really after. So it was Terence Dix that came up with this. This yeah. Boulder Dash rules that the outgoing script editor writes the, yeah. the first script of the yeah because prior to that point, it whenever the script editors or the producers even because producers had written scripts prior to that point as well. You've got yeah. the first episode of the Mind Robber and you've got the yes. Invasion and things like that. Yeah. Prior to that point, I think mostly script editors only wrote, wrote scripts if a. In the case of Dennis Spooner with the Romans, I think mm. they had already been contracted to do so before they became script editor. Right. Or B, if there was an absolute emergency and they needed right. the first okay. slot. Okay. Although Spooner did write the Time Meadow as well as he was right. leaving the script editor's job. Yeah. But I'm not sure whether Dix would have known enough about that situation in order to claim that as a precedent. No, got no. Robert I, hopes I think, to get yeah, into I think, Robert. I think it was just joking, but yeah. 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 But yeah, that, that comes. So yeah, and but yes. So ro- robot is probably the, the beginning, the best, the, the, but also the thing you look at to try and work out what a Dick's script is, and, and then use that to control does. to yeah, sort of yeah, assess yeah. the other scripts. Yes, and what it basically does is it does a lot of that, and I keep saying last and summer wine, but British nineteen seventies sitcom humor. I could yes. just as easily say Dad's Army or whatever. It yeah. does a lot of that humor. Mm. It does a lot of the caricaturing of characters. Yeah. And, oh my God, it really does some caricature yes, yeah, of yeah, characters yeah. and robot. And it does some of the, it does, a, it does a little bit of science as magic or magic mm-hmm. as science. And it does a little bit of politics yes. in there as well. But what it reminds me mostly of is the time monster. Yes, absolutely. Which, which is, which is potentially the, the one that sticks had, Least, least to do with, yeah, yeah, to do with. So, so that sort of maybe suggests that it was a it was a, a triumvirate written script. These these season finales, or just that they all worked so well together mm. that they were able to include things in their own individual scripts yeah. that the others would have put in there anyway, yeah. just because they had such a close working relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually, I was going to bring this up as a point earlier, but if you look at, and I kind of half mentioned it when we talked about the mutants, mm. but if you look at what all the other authors are doing, they're all robbing bits of what each other are doing as well. Right. In a way, you've got, I mean, to think of specific examples, but... Um, you know, if you, you've got Malcolm Hulk mm. doing um, these kind of the most political stories, but by the same token, he's still got giant lizards yes. in all his stories. Yeah. And if you look at something like Colony in Space, 
this to and froing between the two different groups of people on that planet mm. is not a million miles away from the kind of Doctor Who that Terry Nation writes. Yes. And when you get to the end of that story and you find out what the primitives are and you've got these mm. little tiny sort of beetly sort of intelligent, super intelligent aliens who are yeah. glove puppets, hand puppets, whatever, yes. in the caves. That's the kind of idea you can easily imagine Bob Baker and Dave Martin coming up with. Yeah. And then you've got Bob Baker and Dave Martin doing the mutants. Yes. I mean, part part of this would be... Terence Dix. As, but also, at the time, they're mm. all coming from the same generation of scriptwriters. So yeah. this is, we're still in this kind of... This kind of sort of 1950s, 60s scriptwriter territory. So they'll all be draw, drawing on the same sort of influences. And, they're and all what you've got, age. above and beyond that, is these guys come in and they don't just say, this is my idea for a Doctor Who story mm. and Terence Dix and Barry Let's say yes. They come in and say, well, I've got this idea and Barry Letts and Terence Dix say, well, if you do this with it, yes. then that fits in with our model for what we yeah. want Doctor Who to be. Which is what happened with uh, Lewis <clears throat> Marks and David Daleks. Yeah. So he came up with an idea for time-travelling gorillas. That was way outside what Doctor Who was doing. Yeah, and and then they they shoehorned the... Quite effectively shoehorned the Daleks in and kind of made that story. I really loved that story. Yeah, and actually by shoehorning the Daleks in, you don't just get the Daleks in a story that's about Mm. something else, but it changes the whole balance of the story so that that something else becomes like a, a side plot... And then on the other side of the plot, you've got what kind of a world would it be with the Daleks? Yes, yeah. And so the whole story, the balance of the whole story shifts. Yes, it gives the it gives the, it gives the rebels something real to mm. to fight about. Yeah. Um, whereas before, presumably, it would have been a kind something of something fairly... nebulous, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, and obviously we mentioned we've gone over the other thing which I was going to bring up, which is the whole season curtain razor and season mm-hmm. finale thing. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I was thinking is, so with, with Terence Dix, you look at uh, Robot as being the kind of... As paradigm model. Yeah. With Barry Letts, maybe you'd look at something like Paradise of Death or Ghosts of Endspace, which he wrote uh, for the radio. I mean, those are the only things I can think of that he wrote absolutely by himself. And you Doctor know Who. what? They're probably more like the time monster. Yeah, yeah, than yeah. They are any yeah. Of the well, other. That's what I'm thinking. Particularly, yeah. particularly. Uh, uh, para- I mean, they've got that. I think it's the Ghost of End Space, which has the kind of Greek. And in fact, Greek there's another myth, reason. Yeah, myth, there's another uh, reason for thinking the time monster would be Baralets's paradigm Doctor Who story, mm. in that the demons is the first run at it. Yeah. So they haven't established their pattern. Yeah. Yeah. And then the time monster is the one where they consolidate. Yes. And then the green death and planet of the spiders are the ones where they look at the mistakes they made and correct them. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So the time monster is probably the purest yes, of yeah. the Barrelets and Robert Sloman. So you're ones. saying they 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 started with the demons and then they tried to fix the demons with the time monster. <laughs> yes. My god. No, yeah. well I don't think no, that's that's well, a they, funny they, way. They, they, they do have common Themes, so yeah. particularly those three stories. No, I think you're right. I think the way of and looking at it is they started with the demons and they tried to add to it. Yes, yeah. With and actually, the time Pla- monster, Planet of Spiders, is really good. Um, the thing that lets it down is this production on Metabolus Three production, but also, and I, I, I really this... love it. But the the episode of just pure Running John around. John Pertwee yeah, chasing yeah. just to satisfy John Pertwee. 
that especially as they'd done exactly the same thing in the invasion of the dinosaurs just a few yes, weeks yeah, earlier yeah so that that really stymied the pace yeah. but i still love it but mm. it stymies the pace but actually the the scene set in the the the, the retreat center mm. are really creepy and really effective and the characters are really good that's one of and, the best remembered and the John scenes and the scenes towards the end the actual dialogue is quite good it's just delivered really appallingly like the mother of Gareth Hunt. Oh, yeah. Is Gareth Hunt? Is it Gareth Hunt or Gareth? Yes. Yes, yeah, from the New Avengers. Jenny Laird. Jenny Laird, is that her name? Yeah. Really, really. We don't know about Jenny Laird. Well, did, did she go on to a classical acting career? No, she'd come out of one. Oh, right. There's a, I think she's from... Oh, is it the RSC or is it somewhere else? No, there's actually okay. an award oh, right. in one of the top drama institutions in the country that's named after her because of right. how influential she was oh, while she okay. was a student there. okay okay she was terrible yes i mean she was really really bad but and also the, the production which you know the, the sets um but though but actually the content of those stories those episodes really take themes from the, the retreat center episodes and develop them on another world. This is why that mm, story is yeah, quite yeah. nicely balanced because it's it's doing something quite smart. Well, it's kind of got a mirror in the middle of it. Yeah. And the two yeah. storylines yeah. work their way around yeah. the mirror, basically. But, but you don't... It's difficult to see because it's so badly... Some of the execution. So badly executed. Yeah. yeah. Okay, then, then I think we're just about done yeah. with it. Yeah. But I'm going to ask you... Well, okay, let's both do this because I probably done this but i can't remember i'm just going to ask you best and worst of the oh, wow. barry let's 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 start from terror of the autons and go up to robot best and worst okay. between that period oh crikey because i think it's very easy to say inferno but i th- also think it's that's well, the, so the best story um between from terror of the autons I'm doing a lee now and I'm just repeating what you said to give well, myself time to let's think. Let's put a list in front of you. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm tempted to go with the demons, but I know, I know that the demons isn't the best, but it's the one I love I love the most because of my personal relationship with it. But I think I think Invasion of the Dinosaurs, out of all those stories, I, I think point. that's the, the tightest, most enjoyable story. Um, people always talk about the... the the dodgy special effects but i really don't care about the dodgy special effects because for me it's about yeah, you know, yeah. there's so much story around oh, no, those I'm effects completely that, in agreement that i'm going to go for that one although my favorite one from that entire period because we're not going back as far as spearhead from space is mm. the time warrior right because i just yeah. absolutely adore the time warrior yeah and yeah. carnival of monsters and terror of the autons run it close but no right time warrior yeah. for me worst then um, or least favourite. And before we say this, mm. I'm going to say there's not a single story out of all of those that I probably can't enjoy. Mm. Even... <laughs> oh, here we go. Even the Monster of Peladon. That's, what, that's what's casting... That's what this... That's casting the biggest shadow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, the, the Monster of Peladon is bad, but it's it's slightly, and I don't like to use the word, but slightly offensively bad because it's yeah. taking everything progressive from the Curse of Peladon and flipping it on its head. I know, yeah. And it's making a twist out of something that you would have expected. And so I think politically and dramatically, it fails. <laughs> so, so I've I got think, to agree. I think Monster of Peladon 
And I can't remember enjoying it either. I can't remember watching well, it. I, this I can is remember the watching one... the fight and thinking it was really funny. Well, this is the one thing I'll say for it. When the DVD came out, mm-hmm. I actually, and I don't usually do this, but I actually watched, because it's 10 episodes. It was yeah. in a set with Curse of Peladon. Right. I actually watched two episodes a night for five weeknights on the truck. Right. And found I was enjoying The Monster of Peladon as much as I was enjoying The Curse right. of Peladon. Yes. But then I'm not especially a fan of Curse of Peladon. No. So it's I'm ama- saying a lot. It's amazing how good vodka can be in the, in the, <laughs> in the evenings as well. No, there was no <laughs> vodka involved. Well, what I mean is, when I got to Monster of Peladon, having watched Curse of Peladon, yeah. it didn't seem that huge a drop-off in quality. Is anybody doing, the, the, this might be a secret, anybody doing Monster of Peladon for, for your book? Yeah. That would be interesting to read. Yeah, it's in Cause, there. Cause that's I'm the sort of thing now. Because the, the fact that three people dropped out yeah. has meant that actually most of the work on that book was done some months ago. I'm trying to think right. now who's doing The Monster of Peladon or whether it's already done, I can't remember. Because maybe, I've, I mean, I've seen it a couple of, maybe, actually I've probably seen it once or twice, I think. And I've, just, I've said that about, so The Mutants, The Time Monster and The Monster of Peladon. I've seen very few numbers of times. So the maybe Mutants I need to watch is the game. not bad. No, The Mutants is okay. But yeah. I did watch it on my phone. Oh, really? At work. So no. I probably need to... It's probably not even unwrapped. My DVD. Mutants is one of those things where it's a case of production lets it down. Yeah. In odd ways. Yes. Yeah. Because some of the production's great. The monster design... Is fantastic. I remember being genuinely moved by the conclusion, by the, yeah, the, the idea yeah. of the conclusion, and it actually, it actually moved me. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't do. tend to get moved by anything. Some really good stuff in there, but it's one yeah. of the. It's a really inconsistent story. Yeah. yeah. And the time monster is just well, it's not so bad. It's good. It's so yes. bad. It's fun. Yeah. I think the time monster is probably one of the most entertaining Pertwee stories, but for all the wrong reasons. Right. Yeah. Anyway, it's on, not on that <laughs> note, <laughs> yeah, save repeating ourselves. Yes. There was one thing I wanted to bring up about Robert Holmes, and that is that, and this is, his four stories, well, no, we can't count Spearheads from Space, so his three stories during this period, Mm. which would be Terror of the Autons, Carnival of Monsters, and The Time Warrior. The weird thing about those is they're all kind of, and he doesn't do this all the time, so this is not a theme of his work, necessarily they're all metatextual doctor who stories mm. they're all doctor who stories that are about being doctor who stories right terror of the autons is less obviously so yes. but terror of the autons is a bit like looking at spearhead from space and saying let's take the story out yes. and just accentuate the televisual aspect of it let's make it really ostentatiously the television story of Spearhead from Space. Yeah, I mean, we know that Robert Holmes was a very smart guy and yeah. he was also very, very aware of, of putting in jokes. And we also know that he had a very playful relationship with Terence Dix because we know this from uh, The Brain of Morbius yeah, yeah, yeah. and Horror of Fang Rock. So it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't surprise me if that was his relationship with the production team. He had a sort of a, it's a bit an ironic like, yeah. kind of... It's a bit like he's taking the piss out yeah. of what they're doing. Yeah. And it's yeah. most obvious in Carnival of Monsters. Yeah. But actually, most of the things that are in that sense true of Carnival of Monsters are true of the Time Warrior as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Time Warrior starts with Sarah Jane Smith thinking she's in a television programme. Yes. Yeah. And of course, she's just been introduced yeah. into a television program. It's yeah. almost. Yeah. 
Because if you look at it, every one of the companions during that era of Doctor Who mm. is introduced by Robert Holmes. Yes. Time yeah. Warrior is almost like he's saying, you're giving me another companion yeah. to introduce. And that's that's why he's rightly lauded, because he, he, does can, it so. he can get the handle on the dramatic so effortlessly yes. that he can also do the in-jokes without really without really seemingly putting any effort in. So and the entire script of Carnival of Monsters is an in-joke about watching yeah. Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah. Which is... But it's still a really good story. It's still a dramatic yeah. story. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, and That's that a is... happier note to end. <laughs> yeah, well, it's kind of outside the conversation. Yeah. There's an observation no, that needed no. bringing up. Yeah. Because I think that one aspect of the sort of Barry Letts and Terence Dicks era is the one aspect that kind of gets away from them. Yes. But because yeah. it comes up with such brilliant stories, you A, don't mind, and B, don't necessarily even notice. Yes. Because yeah. they do, those three stories do stand out, mm. but not necessarily for being better than what's around them, Yes, but just for being so slightly odder than mm-hmm. what's around them. Yeah. And I suppose, and the one thing, and you brought this up while we were, before we started recording, do we mention Barry Letts and his year with Christopher H. Bidmead and John Nathan Turner? Well, I mean, possibly, but also it, it sounds like he didn't have that much no. to do with it. He was brought in as a sort of figurehead to support J&T. And you might, he might have had bits and pieces of influence. But he's, I think he said, or they've said, that really he didn't actually make any decisions no and whenever they went to him with a decision that needed making he basically said no you do what you think is right yeah. that yeah. kind of thing yeah so yeah. basically it sounds like he really didn't do anything at all i mean there might have been there might have been a sort of business mentor approach rather than a creative he stayed but then john nathan turner had kind of already produced um proved himself as a yes. production unit manager so yeah. even yeah. that it might yeah there's a case for saying that maybe barrelettes was talking to John Nathan Turner about okay, you know what you're doing with the purse yes. strings, but yeah. these are the things to watch out for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but then, as far as I'm concerned, the reason you'd kind of bring it up, or the or the thing that sticks out most about the differences between those two eras for me, is John um, John Barry Letts was the guy who very ostentatiously in the demons says Doctor Who must be underpinned by scientific rationale Mm. but it can still be magic as long as you say there's a scientific rationale so the scientific rationale doesn't actually need to hold any water and then you've got Christopher H. Bidmead who's going all science, gung-ho towards science but is also doing a spectacularly fairy tale rendition yes, of yeah, Doctor yeah, Who yeah. that seems to have nothing to do with science. So they've kind of arrived at the same point by two completely different yeah. routes. Yeah. And I think that's and I and I think that's coincidence. Mm. But I think it's that probably the only thing that bears comparison between the two, really. Yes. Yeah. So yes, yeah. You're right. Right, I guess that's it. So, yeah. uh, well, next week you'll probably be back. Yes, and we'll I'm be watching. Yeah, <laughs> you're always free, and we'll be watching um, the Chris Chibnall Silurian two-parter from series five. Cool, excellent. With Lee and with Simon, I think. Okay, 
So, and that'll be quite interesting because we talked about Chris Chibnall taking over as showrunner within like 48 hours of it being announced and did a two and a half hour podcast on it. Yes. So I'm sure there are other things that will raise their head while we talk about this that we didn't talk about then or that we've come to understand better since then. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that'll be part of the topic of conversation as well. We'll have things to talk about. Yeah, I'm sure we certainly will. (laughs) Well, until then, then. Yes, I was Matt. And I was JR. And we'll speak again soon.